Hello and welcome to this uh, digital discussion. It's such a great pleasure to have Daniel Fiot in my digital talk today and discuss with him the European Union's defense and security initiatives and trends. Daniel Fiot is security and defense editor at the European Union Institute for Security Studies, a position he has held since late 2016. At this institute, Daniel analyzes European defense policy, common security and defense policy, defense capability and industrial issues, and hybrid threats. He is the institute's representative to the executive academic board of the European Security and Defense College. And he's also the author of an annual publication called The Yearbook of European Security. Over the past years, much has been discussed about the European Union as a security and defense actor. Various concepts have been presented as the European Union has developed a range of initiatives designed to enhance its ability to act in a geopolitically volatile world. However, fundamental questions continue to face the European Union as it strives to ensure that it can be taken as a credible defense actor and partner. So let's start this discussion with your personal assessment of the European Union security and defense policy from today's perspective. What are, in your view, the main risks and challenges or even potentials? And given the COVID-19 context, and its short to long-term implications, specifically for the common security and defense policy, but also the national defense budgets. Is the picture as dark as it seems? Well, thanks so much, uh, Velina, and uh, very good morning to you and to, to anyone uh, watching and to everyone watching. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and uh, thanks for the for, for the very uh, good uh, question to begin with. And uh, maybe maybe let me give um, without boring you with history, but let me begin maybe with the the observable fact that at least since um, 2016, so with the publish publication of the global strategy, there has been uh, what can be described as a kind of hyperactivity at the EU level. Uh, when it comes to security and defense policy. But if if maybe we take a step back from this, we can even say that um, actually security and defense became more of a, let's say, a hot topic or a, a political topic for leaders of member states back in 2013, so before, actually, the global strategy. And that was the first time that we had a defense summit at the, the level of heads of state and government, purely on defense. Now at that time, and maybe looping a bit to what you said about the, the COVID pandemic, which we will certainly discuss in more detail, uh, at the time, the two major concerns for Europe were the financial crisis from 2008, which as we know, um, completely uh, shelled out uh, defense budgets and other budgets, uh, even security budgets in Europe. And then we were confronted in 2011 with the Arab Spring, so you had both of these two, I would say, burning crises on the neighborhood, in the neighborhood, uh, financial constraints, and in amongst this uh, kind of perfect storm, uh, you had European leaders decide that uh, defense needed to be put on a higher agenda, and uh, certainly on a higher political level. So this is really, I would say, in recent times, even though CSDP has been there for 20 years, two decades already, that it wasn't just about deploying missions and operations, that the summit in 2013 really wanted to stress the importance of uh, now a familiar theme, which is more of a capacity to act uh, alone or with partners if needed. Also a focus on the more capability and industrial side of things as well. Now, this summit happened before uh, Russia's illegal seizure of, of Crimea in Ukraine. This happened before the migration spike in 2015. It happened before Brexit. And it happened before the election of Donald Trump. By the time you get to the global strategy, then we have even more of a problem because all of these crises are starting to, to pile up for the European Union. 
And the global strategy really is, in at least recent times, the first serious attempt, firstly, of updating the EU's uh, strategic understanding of the world, because the last time that it happened was in 2003 with the security strategy. And that strategy, for all of its benefits, did, did not have a focus on security and defense at all, really. The global strategy updated the vision that the EU had. Plus, uh, it also led, a, a, I guess, the pathway towards all of the initiatives that we speak about today. Uh, to give it its shorthand, the, uh, the alphabet soup of acronyms, you know, EDF, BESCO, all of these ones that uh, some people can get very excited about, including myself but to the outside world probably mean not very much. But uh, the whole point is that at least since 2016, it was not just a, how can I put it? It was not just the, the need to produce a document. That was the easy part in a way. The difficult part was making sure that you had concrete action from there. Now, since 2016, as I said, we've had this hyperactivity uh, from uh, governments. It would be uh, completely naive uh, not to recognize the fact that two structural dimensions have really influenced uh, why the member states all of a sudden invested so much energy and time uh, into EU security and defense. And Brexit was one, and that was important because of the loss of uh, military capabilities, uh, diplomatic presence, etc., and also because the fact that the EU, for the first time in its history, had disintegrated at least part of itself, that raised very uh, important and exist existential questions for the Union. But then, subsequently, uh, the election of Donald Trump uh, also aggravated this, um, this need uh, to try and make sure that uh, although NATO was still the corner of, of defense of many member states, many allies, nonetheless, they needed to somehow invest in uh, the European Union dimension. And that I would say, so we have Brexit on the one hand, we also have um, Trump, which certainly helped. But I would also say that it's a bit broader than this, in the sense that one of the big lessons learned at the EU level was indeed uh, the, the UK, Ukraine crisis. And uh, the, the so-called return, however you describe them, but the return of hybrid threats. And what was rather scary uh, for European leaders, I think, was the ability in particular of Russia to strike underneath the threshold of conventional forces, conventional deterrence. And of course, Ukraine not being a NATO member, uh, not being an EU member, but of course the scenario started to run. What if it did happen in an EU member state or a NATO ally? And there it became very, very clear that for all of the tools that NATO has, and of course they're fundamental to security in Europe, Nonetheless, below the threshold of that uh, conventional force threat of deterrence, the EU needed to get its act together, even in the hybrid domain. That's why also beyond, I would say, purely defense, you've also seen quite a degree of uh, hyperactivity and political attention, highest political attention, to issues such as countering disinformation, uh, also to the uh, uh, cybersecurity and cyber defense domains. And I think what is becoming clearer and uh, much more of importance, and the pandemic has also concentrated thinking, is uh, critical supply and critical infrastructure. So what is interesting, I think, at least from my perspective, and, and I see this uh, pretty much on a day-to-day -day basis when speaking to colleagues inside the House, inside the EU, uh, is how far the understanding of security and defense has expanded as well. From simply being about missions and operations, crisis management, now the whole EU system is really uh, gripped with the fact that the world has changed uh, dramatically for them. And you know, maybe, maybe to just uh, throw this on, on, on the heap of ideas and thoughts, when the security strategy in 2003 uh, started, the first line was, and you, you will probably remember this, Velina, that uh, Europe had never been so prosperous, so, so secure or so free. Now, no European leader, no EU institution can put those words down on an EU document without looking completely foolish. So uh, the world has completely changed. And in fact, the global strategy talks about an existential crisis facing the EU. So I would say that uh, what has happened is, yes, there's been much more political investment in the EU level. Uh, certainly, there has been a shift in mindset in the sense that 
even though policies may disappoint some, nonetheless, there is a greater appreciation that the world we live in today as Europeans is very hostile to our interests. And it's more now than just crises that may happen on our, in our neighborhood. That's, that's the kind of the traditional way of framing our insecurity. And that remains important. However, we now know that there are powers, third powers, we now know there are third groups, non-state actors who are actively seeking to undermine the European Union. And that means that it really is an existential crisis. So we, we have invested a lot, I think, of effort in security and defense. There's a long way to go, and I think we will talk about this uh, in a bit more detail uh, soon. But nonetheless, I would say mind shift has changed because the structural dimensions of the debates have also shifted dramatically for the European Union. So that's my, I guess, my opening gambit to you. Uh, I'm not sure if you want to push me in certain directions uh, or in more specific ways, but uh, happy, to, happy to continue the discussion. We will certainly unpack some of uh, these uh, important uh, European defense uh, initiatives later on. But first, let me start with a question on the European Union's global ambitions. You've already outlined the complexity of the global context, um, given the uh, global power shifts, uh, given the systemic competition between the United States and China, uh, but um, also, I would like to ask you an additional question in this regard, which is, can the European Union actually learn the language of power? Hmm. And finally, uh, an additional uh, a question derived from this one uh, would be, how actually can the European Union apply a hard power in its direct vicinity in the direct southern and eastern mm. neighborhood, given uh, neighborhood, given all the problems uh, and security risks that you have actually outlined in a perfect manner. And let me um, quote another famous phrase from European strategic documents, which is the so-called um, ring of friends, mm. which meanwhile has turned into, as we know, a ring of fire, not only to the south, but also to the east. To the east. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I would also probably add to that uh, increasingly in the north as well, in the high north. So we, uh, when we speak about uh, the arc of instability, it's, it, the problem is it's getting progressively worse, but it's encircling all of Europe, uh, so even in the high north. And of course, climate change and all of these uh, structural pressures are uh, affecting this uh, discussion as well. But let me return to what you said about your first question on the language of power. Well, before you learn the language of power, uh, you have to have a pretty idea of what power means today, I would say. And uh, it is maybe too easy to get caught up in the idea that it, it is all just about military force, even though, as we know, uh, that still counts for a lot in global politics today, military force. So I don't want to sound like I'm undermining that. But what is true as well is that when we think about power a bit more broadly, we already see that there are discussions and steps, concrete steps being taken in policy terms, even to protect the so-called base, if I can say it this way. And what does this mean in practice? Well, it, first of all, it starts, I think, fundamentally, with internal cohesion of our societies in Europe. Yes, uh, a lot of people can even frame this as the, the protection of democracy or the, the health of democracy, but that is fundamental because if you don't have peace at home, it's very difficult to be able to have the legitimacy and the uh, basis on which to project yourself as well. So it, it starts at home, I think. On that basis, it's not just about democracy, but it's also about protecting our critical infrastructure and supply. This, I think, is increasingly going to become an important uh, feature of EU policy. Uh, and you see this already in the discussion about uh, uh, the steps being taken in the digital space with legislation there, and also investments as well, I think, in some critical supplies. And as I said before, the pandemic has helped that. So primarily, the discussion will be about supplies in relation to health, 
uh, and we know where the, the the historical shortages were there in, in during the pandemic but it's a bit more than that it's about mastery of technology so making sure that we have the fundamental basis in Europe both in technological terms and in know-how to ensure that we can stand on our feet that that's the core thing and dependence will become even more uh, a big part of the discussion that should not be read as trade protectionism but it just makes the case like other powers do China does it the US does it that in fundamental areas we need to be uh, secure and we need to have that supply security that's important I think um, beyond that as well when we say we need to learn the language of power uh, I've said health at home uh, infrastructure and supply but it's also about our ability to control the information space and we know that today that connects with all sorts of things in particular de democratic health but that's really important because we have just started at the EU level a very uh, I would say uh, still a long way to go by the way but we have started already in the idea of uh, countering harmful disinformation narratives we know how they function we know where they come from I would say that probably there is a discussion to be had about what kind of narrative do we uh, promote as a European Union that seems to me lacking as well so that would come as the I guess the language part or the linguistic part as well of the discussion how do we communicate strategically what it is that the EU should be doing in the world then coming to the point about uh, hard power that has to be part of the discussion as well and increasingly we know that uh, governments even though they take uh, very different uh, viewpoints on which institutionals set up to organize that discussion we now know that hard power has returned as part of the discussion in European security and defense more broadly and the EU has to work with that assumption because it should also be said by the way that even if we think of the EU simply as a crisis manager which is what we've done for two decades so as a crisis manager and a capacity builder I would say even in those respects if the EU limits itself to that uh, discussion it will still face an extraordinarily hostile environment when it deploys we already see the fact that non-state actors terrorist groups are very quick to fill strategic vacuums they do so using quite sophisticated but cheap technologies commercial drones cyber defense they recruit they radicalize via uh, social media channels the cyber world the digital world that has become more hostile to the EU's presence so directed disinformation against the EU when it deploys and also the presence now of third states you can no longer say that the deployment to Syria or the deployment to Libya or wherever it may be will be free of the interests of say Russia or increasingly China we also know Turkey has a, a has an interest in these parts of the world what do you do in a place like Libya where you have different third powers involved in the conversation on both sides of the of the conversation actually you have the presence of paramilitary groups you know you increasingly have for example China doing live uh, naval exercises in the Mediterranean Russia already has a naval base in Tartus in uh, in Syria has a new one in Sudan uh, I mean the even the crisis management paradigm itself needs to be updated and really re thought of quite uh, quite considerably I would say now on the issue of military action I think what is also fair to say is that since 2016 what I told you about the hyperactivity and in new initiatives the the so-called alphabet soup all of this if you look at these tools they primarily speak to the need for capability development and the industrial dimension now they are important by the way they're really important parts of the conversation however we miss somehow the operational dimension and that unfortunately or that is the challenge at least that is the real test of the EU's credibility as a uh, actor who understands and uses the language of power so we need to invest much more in our operational uh, output and let's also phrase it in this way there has to be some serious lessons learned at the EU level and this is going to be one of the challenges for the next few years about how we can make the EU much more of an attractive venue for member states when they want to deploy force I mean we have some examples for uh, if you look at the Strait of Hormuz uh, Operation Arjanor there you see that it's a very needed and very valid uh, naval uh, uh, kind of force mission operation 
But why is that not in the EU uh, framework? This is a fundamental question. So when we think about operational outputs, we also have to think about um, uh, the credibility of our actions and the possibility, as I said earlier, that when you're investing in defense, when you're undertaking military operations, you can then try to benefit within an EU framework of all of the other tools uh, that we have at the disposal as well. Now, I don't want to paint too much of a bleak picture because already you see uh, there is Operation Irene in, in the Mediterranean. And maybe even more interestingly, if you look at uh, Operation Atalanta of the Horn of Africa, that recently had its mandate revised and expanded and beyond just countering piracy, which still is an issue. Also, on top of that, we have this new initiative. And again, forgive me for the very uh, clumsy acronym that is associated with it, the Coordinated Maritime Presence. But that now begins with its first pilot case uh, in the Gulf of Guinea, where the EU is trying to boost its naval presence in that part of the world. So there are two parts of the discussion about hard power uh, and uh, learning the language of power. It is about operational credibility. If you cannot deploy then you're going to seriously undermine any discussion about power, the EU's part, place in the world. But secondly, it's not just about um, deploying force or using military force. We also have to be quite intelligent in thinking where it would apply. And we know that crisis management is going to intensify anyway for the European Union. There will be strategic vacuums. There will be new types of threats that we face when we deploy uh, in the field. But beyond that, we need to also have a discussion about whether or not EU security and defense can help in places such as, uh, you know, uh, securing the global commons for the EU. I mean, this, is, this is maybe how it also connects a bit with the discussion about the EU as an economic power. I think we can certainly do more when it comes to the security of space, uh, the digital domain, and the maritime uh, domain as well. You know, so we have to think a bit more, not just about how we would use force, if we would use force, but in what respects would we do that? And it is not just a question of saying that the EU should have a footprint simply in Africa or simply on the oceans and the seas. Because I also think that uh, the EU uh, has a, a greater role to play. We have to figure out how to do it uh, politically and in technical terms. But even in the Eastern uh, dimension, it is very, very important given NATO's own steps in that part of the world reassurance measures in that part of the world, that the EU also has a role to play there. Obviously not maybe in the conventional uh, threat uh, sense, but certainly below the threshold when it comes to hybrid threats. So I would see the, the coming months and years as a very good opportunity uh, to really think concretely, not theoretically, but concretely, about where the EU can take its action. I say all of this, and I'll end on this part, but I say all of this knowing full well and not being naive as to think that there will not be disagreements between the member states on how this is achieved and in which directions it's done. That has been the history of EU defense and security policy since it began. So you always have to find a way through the different countervailing interests and preferences. But I'm confident that the fact that our, as you put it, the, the ring of friends becoming the ring of, of, of threats and enemies uh, that is quite a good stimulus uh, for governments to, to take action and to think about how they uh, exercise hard power in the world in combination with the full suite of, of tools and uh, dimensions of power that, uh, that I think we need to uh, think about. Uh, before we move to the concrete uh, defense initiatives, I would like to ask one additional question that uh, has now basically emerged out of uh, your input and that is that uh, given that we are already operating in a highly complex world uh, but at the same time uh, geopolitics and geoeconomics are back on the agenda of global mm -hmm. affairs uh, realpolitik is back uh, on the agenda of the rational behind state behavior um, and we have many examples, not just uh, globally operating powers such as United States and China, but also regional, uh, middle-sized powers are already sticking to this rational. And what I'm missing in this picture is um, how uh, the European Union 
and the member states, because we have a very we have a, this twofold decision making process, are going to um, come up with a with a realistic answer to that. I mean, if our direct neighbourhood uh, has been penetrated by various forces, which are ready to uh, to use uh, hard power at any given moment, and um, we Europeans at the very same time are actually not even capable of uh, coming up with a, with a realistic response that means, for instance, counterbalancing this hard power. Um, I would like to ask this very unorthodox question. Why not um, adapting to this reality, knowing that there is a trend of private security companies which will operate along with national armies to secure exactly this very same global and regional flows of goods and uh, services and data and why not actually uh, using what we have already established we have battle units we have never we have never deployed in mm. any battle field um, why not using this kind of unorthodox way of uh, looking at things and trying to come up with something that is feasible, like let's take a private, a private uh, public partnership that doesn't require this very complex decision making, that it has a clear mandate to operate only and solely in regional um, battlefields in the south and in the east where we have direct interests, I mean direct to political but also to economic interests mm -hmm. we have infrastructure we have connectivities uh, we have supply chains we want to secure as Europeans and why not actually establish something similar to the French Legion which is a national uh, mm. private uh, private uh, so to say private military unit uh, at the European level mm. where we have actually institutions member states but also why not uh, European companies, which are very much interested in securing se se securing uh, the, the 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 European the European way of uh, doing things? Let's put it in a very abstract way. I'm just giving you an idea where I think that we what we also like is a kind of a more realistic view of how things work right now in the world, where we mm. have we come up with this very idealistic idea about the world and think and expect that the world would accept this way of uh, thinking and a way of living without penetrating and without threatening it. What is your take on that? Well, there are a lot of interesting points, Develina, so I will do my best to, um, do my, to, to, to respond to them. The first thing I would say is uh, actually maybe to push back a little bit at the concept of uh, complexity because sometimes uh, things are not that complex <laughs> sometimes things can be very very simple but we we fool ourselves into maybe thinking that they may be too complex for certain reasons because maybe you don't want to take a political decision maybe because you 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 may think it doesn't have uh, democratic legitimacy whatever for whatever reason sometimes the word complexity can be overly used but in some cases uh, when I look at the threats uh, in Eastern Europe, for example, uh, are they that complex? I'm not sure. What is complex, however, uh, is the response. That is a fundamental issue for the European Union. And I, I would maybe frame um, my response to your questions in, in a certain way. And it's an observation which I think not, not only I have had, but I, I see many people thinking in this direction. Uh, if you look at the US and if you look at China, which have, by the way, fundamentally different political systems, the one thing that they do very well and they share in common is firstly how fast they can take decisions. So they have a very centralized system, even though, again, politically very different in the way that they are, ideologically very different. So they have speed. But they also do something which is in their very DNA, which is they have an ability to balance economic and strategic questions. In fact, even that binary which I have just put here of economic and strategic does not exist in their minds. It is just strategy. Yeah. 
Now, the problem we have at the EU level, and this is for maybe the way it was historically constructed, it comes back maybe even to the point you raised, um, maybe about the, the specific um, normative basis of the European Union. It has been fundamentally set up, I would say, where we try to separate economic and strategic questions. Now, I'm not sure how sustainable that is, because as we see, and as we've already discussed, in so many different areas, take critical supply as one example, take critical investments uh, in key uh, technology domains, that is not purely a question of economics anymore. So I think beyond security and defense, by the way, so a bit more broadly, one of the huge challenges for the European Union in the coming uh, years and decades will be how does it put together this discussion uh, between the economic side of the house, which even institutionally and legally has been separated, with uh, a more strategic understanding of the world. I don't want to get into a discussion uh, as to who should be responsible for that or what mechanism should we put in place, because that is uh, firstly, quite, again, probably a meaningless conversation unless you have member states buying into or at least understanding that that's a problem. Now, I know that also causes a fundamental issue for member states today. They, they think differently about the world still. More, some put the emphasis on economics. Others put the emphasis more on the strategic dimension. In a way, they're both wrong. <laughs> they, they have to fuse it. That, that is, I think, also what you said about the geo uh, the fusion between realpolitik and the geoeconomics and one of the lessons that we also realize and um, i can be very frank i mean you know often policymakers are are, are classed as somehow naive uh, bureaucrats this is not the reality uh, many understand the fact that if the eu is going to have any chance of supporting the multilateral system which it enjoys uh, which it has supported, which it is part of, then it needs to not be so naive about the rules of the game today. Exactly. Now, that may be more of a transactional approach to international relations, but let me also flag the fact that even in the global strategy, we spoke about uh, principled pragmatism. And it's already getting at the idea that we somehow have to fuse our strategic and economic interests. So that is a journey which has not been completed. I would not want to uh, give you any idea of what the institutional setup should be to deal with that, because I still think more fundamentally it's a question for member states to, to agree on. And we see this in so many different areas of policy today, especially when it comes to China. There's no surprise there but also in relation to the US, where there are still also questions about the trade relationship there. So there's always been as well a strain in European uh, intellectual thought on foreign policy uh, about how the EU, which tries to create a, a kind of paradise for Venus, maybe to use this expression from Robert Kagan, but nonetheless still having to think and be able to deal with the laws of the jungle outside. I'm not too sure if you can maybe, maybe that's too simplistic a reading. But there is certainly a truth there that we cannot be naive in thinking that everyone sees the world in our vision. We have to fight for that vision, essentially. That's what it is about. So I think that will be the, the main um, vector, political vector, in which most discussions will intensify uh, at the EU level. And all of this discussion about uh, strategic autonomy uh, even uh, sovereignty, European sovereignty, which you hear a lot of. I would even uh, probably more frame it in terms of European power, so what we can do in power terms. These are not fixed concepts, and there is no clear definition to them, precisely because they are used as vectors to approach this broader discussion about who we see as friends and foes, how do we bring together economics and the strategic dimension together, and ultimately, how do we protect the interests and values of the European Union? That's the, that's the ultimate uh, goal here. So I would, uh, I know you are also thinking in these terms as well, um, but uh, that will, I think, intensify only as we also deal with the, the uncertain effects now of the COVID pandemic, which, by the way, 
it is a crisis, but it has not started yet in, in uh, geopolitical terms, I would say. We still have to wait and see uh, and deal with the fallout from this uh, shocking, uh, shocking virus. Mm -hmm. So, to finish this part of the of the discussion, which is focusing more on uh, global, global, the global orientation of uh, the European Union as a geopolitical actor. Do you think that uh, strategic sovereignty or strategic autonomy, or whatever uh, term uh, you can pick, depending on uh, the national capital, um, is realistic? given that we the european union is still very much missing in some of the main domains mm -hmm. although we still count as a world trade power so we have a large geoeconomic cloud globally mm -hmm. but on the other side uh where are we amid a fourth industrial revolution amid a global digitalization with uh, world champions coming from China and the United States. Mm -hmm. um, given the topic on global and regional supply chains reconfigurations, where are we there? Given the topic of technological breakthroughs in space and defense sectors, where are we there? Where are our champions? Where are actually our you know, leading uh, technological um, companies. So what would be your take on that, uh, maybe in a short uh, answer, so that we can actually move also to the concrete uh, defense initiatives? Yeah, f f thank you very much. I will try to be as telegraphic as I possibly can, but you have opened up Pandora's box with this discussion, I would say. Okay. Um, let me make a first observation that, uh, we tend to think of the concepts of strategic autonomy, uh, European sovereignty, uh, again, whatever label you want to give it, we tend to think of it as largely a theoretical discussion. And there is some truth to that. But I would just point out the fact, as I said earlier, that if, as I believe, the main vector of the EU's uh, progress over the next few years is its ability to be more strategic about its economic power in the world, then you do need that theoretical discussion uh, at some point. And let's face it, we're also living in democracies. So that is the very nature of discussion. You are supposed to say things that other people do not like, by the way. That's the nature of democracy. And you counter that ma message as well. That's your right to do that. So I think from the theoretical level, we should not close down debates. We should contest these concepts. It's very healthy that we do so. However, on the other hand, I think most people recognize the fact that the theoretical discussion alone is not enough. We need to move beyond that. That's why my sincere hope, at least in, in the security and def defense area, but even beyond that, uh, that we move to concrete action very, very soon, because that will really erode the credibility of the European Union in the coming years and decades. And what you said about, um, and what I said as well, about the fact that uh, the EU is a, is a geo-economic power because of its trade, you know, we will also have to contend with the fact in the next five to 10 years that we will have an erosion of that power. Mm -hmm. It's just the way the world economy is going. Yes. And the pandemic will probably accelerate that. So it's, we're, it's more urgent today, actually, that we get a, a compromise and a real strategic direction on this big question of the economic and the strategic dimensions of that. Let me quickly just go into the uh, notion of sovereignty because I think it also links to this. When we say sovereignty, I'm not so sure the conversation is about what we want to do alone uh, without other people or against other states or other countries or regions. I think that the when we use the word European sovereignty, it's more fundamental than this. Uh, it is indeed about uh, making sure that you have the technologies, so mastery and control of those technologies, and you better ensure that you invest in those technologies, by the way. Um, but it's more important than that. The issue of European sovereignty is about the fundamental contract that exists between states, between people and citizens, and also about uh, the kind of uh, globalization of the world as well. Sovereignty has always been about what the division of power is between people and those that rule them. What is scary about today, and what certainly comes into the digital uh, domain and the digital discussion, is that we see companies, the so-called GAFA, who seem to exercise more power than governments, certainly. 
That raises questions about democratic freedoms, freedom of speech, etc. But also citizens are looking to their governments in the EU and wondering whether or not they are the ones that are protecting them in these spheres or can protect them in these spheres. So when we talk about European sovereignty, it is much broader, of course, than security and defense, even though that's a big part of the discussion. But it's also about the technological dimensions. We shouldn't be dependent in certain technology domains, that's for sure. But also it's about rethinking the contract that we have in the EU, the social contract, if you want to borrow from Rousseau, between the people, the ruled and the rulers. And that seems to become uh, fuzzier by the day because of uh, the way the world is working. Uh, in other areas, I mean, the US also suffers the same kind of questions, by the way, because it's a democracy, has exactly the same issues on how to deal with this broader problem. China obviously has a different way of dealing with it. So again, you could ar argue, you know, who, is, uh, who has the advantage or the strategic advantage in that, in that uh, discussion. But also the question here is about um, sovereignty being a, a basis for improving our legitimacy, political, the legitimacy of political rule, about the security of citizens, uh, but it's also about our credibility. If political authorities cannot protect citizens, we're in big trouble, big, big trouble. And let's not forget that uh, we spoke about a twofold uh, decision-making process uh, in uh, Europe, but in reality, it's a threefold process because of this greatest capital that the European Union and the uh, member states uh, have, which is the European citizens. Mm. Uh, as educated as they are, as politically and socially active as they are, they can actually contribute through a bottom-up uh, bottom, uh, bottom up, uh, kind of process to, um, to, to, to this decision-making. And of course, this demands this kind of legitimacy which you've outlined. Mm -hmm. But I think that there are a lot of advantages also to, to, find, out, to find out ways how to engage the European citizens yes. or uh, in, a, in a more efficient way as uh, it is the case right now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So now let's move to the European defense, uh, security and defense initiatives and uh, trends. It's a lot uh, going on. Uh, it's a quite a, of a hyperactive uh, program, as you've mentioned at the beginning. And I would like to start with the strategic compass, mm. which uh, offers the European Union and the member states uh, a kind of a window of opportunity to reflect on um, the security and defense. European security and defense, um, even though that in reality uh, threats uh, and uh, risks uh, will not wait for, the, for, for, for us uh, to get uh, our act together. So um, looking ahead of this and next year, uh, there is this expectation that uh, the strategic compact, uh, compass should outline certain um, security uh, perceptions, mm -hmm. so risk and threat perceptions. Uh, so my question to you is how is the European Union moving from uh, basically from ideas to, to acts, to action, um, and uh, are we expecting too much from the strategic compass or what are we expecting from the strategic compass? What is your update on uh, this process? Yeah, yeah, thank, thanks so much. Um, the first thing I would say is that we should probably put the strategic compass idea in its full context, right? Mm -hmm. So what we saw is that, uh, well, what I should say first is that the strategic compass is in no way really designed to rewrite the global strategy. That's not the point of it. But what became very clear is that after the global strategy, the, the EU itself uh, developed what we would call a new level of ambition in security and defense, which, yes, included crisis management and capacity building, that had been part of CSDP, EU defense, for so long. But it introduced the third pillar, the protection of Europe, uh, the protection of the EU and its citizens, which itself is uh, quite a broad topic, as we know. It's a broad area. Uh, and what became very clear then uh, during the period of hyperactivity on PESCO, on EDF, on CARD, and all of these initiatives, was that somehow we lost the clarity we needed on what it is we wanted to do in concrete terms. So the simple test is this. If you hand the level of ambition or the, strate uh, the global strategy to a military planner or a civilian planner, and you say, go away and meet these objectives, 
The problem we have today is they'll come back and say it's not it's not detailed enough. We have no idea how you want us to be able to do uh, to deal with these uh, uh, objectives. So the compass is in a way a, a, a chance to give us much more concrete focus on what it is we want to achieve in operational terms. And that's, I think, a very important uh, part of the discussion. Now, it, in my view, also will be the kind of final piece of the jigsaw, if you want to say, put it this way, because it will allow us, firstly, to make sure that the tools that have been rapidly developed are actually coherent, so they're working together. So it's not a question of uh, having a disjointed framework for defense uh, uh, capability development and so forth. But it also makes sure that, and this is the hope, and this is the biggest expectation, that when this document is delivered in March 2022, that we immediately get to the point where we can implement concrete actions, right? If after March, we're still then thinking about, ah, we may need a follow-on action plan or another document to deal with uh, what we've discussed, then the compass would not have uh, been successful. The point is in March, it should be as clear as it possibly can so that we can then move on to implementation. Now, implementation itself is going to be tricky because at this stage in time, we're taking on board uh, different views and different ideas from the member states. They're the ones driving this process. So it's up to them to volunteer priorities, uh, capability areas, operational, uh, let's say, objectives. Uh, they have to submit them uh, in an EU sense. The big problem or the big challenge will be putting them all together and getting political agreement on them. It comes back again to the fundamental issue in defense and security policy that it's the member states who drive it and it could therefore only be as ambitious or not depending on they what they want to do. Now at this stage in time, the signals I pick up is that the member states are actually uh, quite proactive with their ideas. They're flooding in. So, so the question will be one of managing them as well and managing expectations. But uh, that will be the core challenge. Now, if we think the compass in itself is going to somehow revolutionize the EU or somehow uh, make it into a credible and autonomous military actor overnight, that is certainly not the case. But it has to set a pathway for the next five years to ten years where we know exactly what our objective should be, where our interests lie, and how we want to act to meet them. That will, of course, mean that we have to think about our partnerships today. You know, that we have the maybe sometimes the guilty uh, uh, fault or the guilt at the EU level of seeing partners as all made equal. They're not. They have different strengths. They have different interests themselves. So we need to think a bit more carefully about what it is or what it means to say you're a strategic partner in security and defense. Uh, we need to think about our capabilities. There, I think you already touched upon it in one of your earlier questions about uh, uh, the, the, how rapidly technologies are changing. Uh, we need to stay ahead of that game because otherwise our armed forces will really fail. Uh, and especially in the digitalization realm, our armed forces need to enhance the digitalization. But it's more than that. Eh? It's not just about the future. It's also about all of those capability gaps which are still unfilled, which every year get recognized at the EU level. You have a gap here, you have a gap here, you have a gap here, and they're still not filled. So we have to do both of those things at the same time. Then it's also about resilience. The question mark about what role security and defense can play today, operationally, is an open question. Crisis management is certainly interesting and important, so is capacity building. But what about the third part of the pillar, protection of Europe or the protection of the EU? What role there could the full range of EU tools play? So beyond CSDP, what can they play in enhancing the resilience of, of the EU? And then uh, another point that the campus should be uh, very clear on is what are our operational ambitions for CSDP? We've had it for 20 years. It has proven itself, however you measure the success of CSDP missions and operations, of course, but it has proven itself as an autonomous capacity of the EU. Politically, it's autonomous. We deploy with capabilities. The question mark now is how are we going to strengthen CSDP in the very hostile world which I mentioned earlier? So in terms of process, uh, we're in a phase now where ideas are coming in, where member states are debating between themselves what it is that the priority area should be. And I would also say that this builds on a little bit uh, the threat analysis that was conducted last November. 
So the first time where the intelligence capacities at the EU level, uh, the INSEN and the SIAC, as we call them, providing an intelligence assessment to member states for the next five to ten years. Unfortunately, that's a classified document, so we don't really know the, what they stated. But uh, it seems to have already kind of exercised minds uh, within a number of national capitals that they're now volunteering ideas to try and meet uh, the challenges of these threats over the next few years. So my biggest hope is that um, this year, and we have basically a year to complete this document, it's not a lot of time, but actually maybe that's a good thing because otherwise you would continuously debate uh, these points. But by the end of it, we should be able to look at the compass and say, ah, in operational terms, these are the threats we're trying to deal with. These are the means we want to be able to deal with them. And these are the partners who we will work with to try and uh, meet these threats as well. That's my hope. Maybe that's too much of an expectation, but uh, the point is keeping throughout the process the interest of the member states, the engagement of the member states, and then by the end of the process as well, and this is very important, that the member states themselves feel like they own that compass. It should be a reference for their own engagement at the EU level. So as they start to plan about what they do uh, in, um, uh, in NATO, in other fora as well, and in the EU, they should be very clear about what that means in terms of uh, military and civil uh, engagement. Mm -hmm. And what are actually the most anticipated uh, developments regarding uh, CART and EDF? And also, how would you assess the first phase of uh, PESCO? Uh, and what can you realistically expect from the second uh, phase? Do you yes. see also links uh, between these uh, initiatives? Um, and if so, could you, could you maybe summarize some of the um, uh, most important links between these initiatives? Yes, it's a fundamental fundamental point. Huh? I mean, the, the, the fact of the matter is that the compass is not supposed to replace any of these tools. It's supposed to give them more guidance, and it has to make sure that they work together. So you can't have a situation where you have uh, PESCO projects and EDF projects being developed without the card process happening first. You need to have the direction on what it is you're, you need to invest in, where the opportunities are between member states before you even uh, commit to a capability project or a technology project. So it's about lining them up. And that's already started, by the way. It's, it's not that there's complete anarchy. It has begun, but it needs to be fine-tuned, I would say. Uh, now, on the CARD and PESCO, and because they are quite related as well in terms of uh, which institutions uh, oversee the processes, we know already that last uh, November, December, we had firstly the, the first full report of the CARD process, which is what it's supposed to do. Every year it gives a report on, on progress being made. And the same with PESCO, we had the so-called strategic review at the end of the year. Now, both of these exercises, even though these initiatives are still very young, by the way, only a few years old, um, they came up with some interesting conclusions, I would say, some unsurprising and some uh, to work towards. The unsurprising element is that both CARD and both PESCO said that the member states are still too, too fragmented when it comes to defense investments and to defense planning. We knew that already. Probably we didn't need PESCO or CARD to tell us that. But it's important that in a political context that is stated and is continued to be stated until it's uh, dealt with. Um, the second point is about what areas of uh, capabilities that we should be investing in at the EU level. And there I think the card was very, very clear that on areas such as space and defense, that is going to be one of the core areas, uh, on uh, main battle tanks, for example, on cyber defense, came up with a whole list of priority areas. And more importantly than that, the card, review, uh, the card uh, report itself uh, identified at least 55 different areas where member states uh, should work together and not duplicate the capabilities that they plan to invest in. So that stating that clearly at the political level is important. PESCO as well made, uh, again, the observation that we're still far too fragmented. Member states have to do more to live up to the commitments under PESCO. That was to be expected as well because we need to have a mind shift, not just, uh, not just policy action. But then even on the capability side, it has uh, uh, suggested that at least by 2025, over half of the PESCO projects will be fully operational. Now, one can have a debate about the quality of the projects that will be delivered. Uh, I often say that uh, probably for the capabilities that 
really will make a strategic difference, you can't build them in five years. You need five, 10, uh, 20 even sometimes years. So it could be that the other percentage of, of outstanding projects are the ones that really have strategic uh, meaning. However, nonetheless, it's still a good sign that uh, member states are moving quite uh, ahead and it, in, in broad terms by 2025 is pretty quickly, I would say, uh, to develop these capabilities. However, what the PESCO review also told us was that we need to be much smarter about selecting these projects in the first place and also ensuring that they match up with each other, that they're not just standalone projects or silo projects. They need to, if they're going to have real strategic effect, they need to be able to be combined. And that's going to be an important challenge as well moving forward. On EDF, very quickly, because I know we have only a few minutes, uh, on EDF there, uh, now we move to the stage where the EDF proper, the work program for the Defense Fund, will start. Mm -hmm. So that will mean investing some uh, 8 billion over the next few years uh, in uh, defense research and capability projects. But already, you know, uh, there has been some 560 million euros over the last, uh, what is it, two or three uh, years already dedicated to these preparatory works. And some of the technologies being invested in are quite interesting indeed. Uh, and range anything from, you know, cyber defense to space capabilities, uh, the list goes on. So I think even on the capability side of things, the EU has come quite, uh, has been quite advanced in the type of technologies and capabilities it, uh, it will invest in. Of course, not part of the conversation at the moment are the big uh, capability items, such as the the future combat aircraft system or the next generation of main battle tank. There we need a bit more time to see if they, how they will develop. But nonetheless, uh, in a very, very sp uh, short space of time, I think we've moved quite far with all of these uh, tools. The trick is now to keep up that ambition going and to make sure that the, the projects that we decide upon will really meet the operational objectives, which hopefully the strategic compass will uh, will give us in much more clarity. So it's about putting the system together, I would say. Speaking of which, I would like to ask a final question that relates to the Franco-German um, axis. Mm -hmm. Because as we know, it is a significant component and an important factor for the success of all of these initiatives. It's not uh, the sufficient, but still the necessary condition mm -hmm. Um, so, given that uh, there will be elections in Germany this year and in France next year, there is an expectation for a shift uh, in the leadership within the Franco-German um, cooperation format regarding security and defense. So, what is your anticipation? Do you think that the elections will change um, the nature? Of this, um, of this kind of motor of European uh, integration and consolidation when it comes to security and defense, or will things stay uh, the way they are right now? It's, it's difficult to say because one would need at least a crystal ball to know who the leaders would be, uh, the winners would be in those elections. But uh, you're, you're completely correct about the fact that the Franco-German engine is, uh, is fundamental for security and defense. We know it's more fundamental than just security and defense as well. It's, it's at the heart of the project. Um, so we have to see how that develops. I mean, there's always a period of time where... Um, you know, there is political negotiation on a more bilateral basis where each side tries to understand each other in, in, in clearer terms when there are new leaderships and new administrations in place. Uh, that's something that the EU has to, to deal with. But, um, you know, it's a, it's a big club. It's not just France and Germany. So, uh, and there are the institutions involved. So there will be some certainty there, at least with the institutions not having to move or change. There will be a direction there. Uh, I think on the broad, this, the broad topics that have already been agreed at the EU level, on the green dimension, on uh, digitalization as well, and on the importance of boosting security and defense, I would um, hazard to say that those uh, issues will remain important to whoever uh, wins the elections uh, in those countries. But um, maybe we're fortunate as well that uh, they happen so close to each other and... Uh, you know, at least after March 2022, whatever happens, we can then get back to the business, not of uh, politicking, uh, not of elections, but to ensuring that uh, 
the EU is able to to see to its own way in the world. I mean that that would be the hope. But uh, I would never, I would humbly never uh, predict what will happen in elections uh, in countries. Now I see that our time is running out. However, I just um, noticed that we've received questions in the chat room, mm. and I would like to. Um, misuse your patience for uh, final questions from the audience. Um, one relates to the future of the European Union-Russia relationship. So what's your take on that? Um, second question is how far the European Union could continue and sustain the European Union flag missions while nations pursue their own agenda in the same terms. And there is also a question um, on uh, real European military operation. So do you think that the real European Union military operation is a realistic scenario in the near future as a response to a potential escalation in the ring of fire mm -hmm. around Europe? Maybe some short answers to this, I think, very, uh, important, very interesting questions. Yeah, very good. Well, I I don't think I'm maybe the best person to speak on uh, about EU-Russia relations because I cannot claim to be an expert of Russia. Well, I guess who can claim to be a, an expert of Russia these days? But uh, I, I just take the cue from now the messaging that has, has been there um, that, uh, you know, China, uh, sorry, not China, but we could apply it to China as well, by the way. But, um, you know, there is uh, the rivalry is very clear. And present and that adversarial approach is uh, is there obviously Russia does not show EU any degree of respect either so I think uh, the problem we have today is that there is no real clear road out of this problem of this issue with Russia so I guess uh, in the broader scheme of things uh, those uh, NATO reassurance measures will remain uh, and we will have to see a lot also depends a bit on the Biden administration because they've not really uh, you know, come onto the scene as concretely as, um, as as they will do, I'm sure, over the administration's period. So we have to see how that develops. Um, but I think there has been a yeah a wake up call in some quarters and as to what uh, Russia's position and intentions are in the world. Um, we could go into a long discussion about Russia and China as well, but we don't have time for that. Um, now, on the question of remind me of the second question again. Sorry, yes. Rina. So we have a question uh, that is uh, um, how far the European Union could continue and sustain the European Union flag missions while mm -hmm. nations pursue their own agenda in the same terms. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question, but it comes back to what I said earlier about giving um, member states an incentive to work for the EU. We know today that a lot of member states see the EU and its structures as a bit cumbersome and a bit slow and also subjected to um, to unanimity. <laughs> so, of course, you know, they look at this, some countries would put speed of action over all other objectives, and sometimes that's just necessary, given the crises that we face. So the question, Mark, is how do we uh, re-articulate the rules of engagement at the EU level? What member states lose when they don't go through the EU is the ability to connect with all of the tools that we have at the EU, uh, um, in the toolbox. And that is not just about military force, but it's also about the civilian dimension as well, and increasingly the ability to tie that up with all of the other political factors, uh, such as investments in countries, uh, the diplomacy that we have towards certain countries. So you, you somehow lose something if you don't act in the EU, uh, but we have to rethink. Me personally, I mean, uh, you know, uh, I, I try to look at the treaties a bit more because I know they're not going to be completely revised anytime soon, but there's already a lot of leeway in the treaties. I mean, if you look at uh, Article 44, for example, which uh, allows the Council, albeit for unanimity, but it allows the Council to entrust certain military um, tasks uh, to a group of member states should they wish. I mean, why not look at that again? You know, why not try to experiment a bit and see if there can't be a, a bit of an evolution in the way we plan for and uh, and deploy missions and operations? So you will always have uh, national operations and missions. You will always have bilateral uh, missions and operations. The question is, we need to give uh, member states more of an incentive to engage at the EU level because it's for their benefit as well. If they can bring the full 
uh, weight of the EU's tools on a particular problem, that is quite uh, beneficial, I would say. Mm -hmm. And finally, do you think that the real European Union military operation is a realistic scenario in the near future as a response to a potential escalation in the brink of fire? It has to be. It, ha it has to be. Otherwise, what are we doing? <laughs> what are we doing? Uh, that's the, that's the, that is the core test of credibility. Um, you know, I, I was tweeting yesterday uh, about the fact that we come to almost the 10-year anniversary of uh, the NATO-led mission in Libya. Uh, uh, this will be on the 19th of March, to be more specific. But that was a crisis situation which everyone said the EU was built for. And we failed. Now, we cannot afford such failures in the future, I think, because the more and more we look at the world, we know at least a few things. We know that the US, regardless of who is president, will be focusing more on China and in a secondary uh, order, Russia as well. So it means for, for Europeans, we have to do more uh, towards Russia. That's the first point. Uh, and secondly, uh, also what happens in, as you put it, the ring of fire. Because we will not be able to rely on all of the old certainties and the status quo that existed before. The Americans have been very clear to us on that front, by the way. They like to cooperate, we like to cooperate, but we cannot rely on them all the time. So, the ultimate test for EU uh, military action, and it comes back to what you said about the exercise of hard power, this is the ultimate test of our credibility. Anything short of that is, uh, is what exactly? What are we doing? We're developing capabilities, for what purpose? We're developing, you know, hopefully in the next few uh, months, a clearer idea in operational terms what it is we want to achieve. If we don't act on that, what is the point uh, of this whole thing? So that, that's how I would end. We, that is the ultimate test. Full spectrum ability to intervene uh, militarily where our interests and uh, values are, are there, where they're clear, uh, and uh, having the capability suite to be able to do that. Alone, as, as the saying goes, alone if necessary, but with partners as well, uh, should that occasion arise. So uh, that is the test for me. Credibility is the important thing here. Well, this is, I think, uh, a really good ending of this uh, highly interesting conversation. Unfortunately, it was meant to last only uh, 60 minutes, but uh, <laughs> that gives me immediately the opportunity to invite you to another digital discussion. Uh, probably at the end of the year to cover some of uh, the trends and developments that you have outlined uh, for us in a perfect manner. And by saying that, I really thank you for joining me today and for actually outlining the um, directions of where the European Union is heading on security and defense policy. I thank you very, very much for being with me and I wish you all the best, much success for all your undertakings and uh, plans uh, in the future. Thank you, Velina. Happy to return anytime. Thank you, Daniel.